If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And I'm back with another episode of Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week, it's another free association podcast translation. I couldn't come up with any great topics this week. And actually, I've done this a few times and it seems to work out. I checked and the last time I did it was October. Basically, what this is, is I'll start off with one topic and I'll just riff and see where it goes and where it leads. So other than the first story, I have no idea what I'm going to be talking about, and uh, hopefully I don't regret uh, any of the stories that I tell or any of the things that I say. But hey, that's what makes it kind of fun and spontaneous. So that's what we're doing this week on Hollywood and Levine. And the one story I want to start with is uh, Night Court, the revival of Night Court on NBC, and that stars uh, Melissa Rauch. You probably remember her from Big Bang Theory. And uh, I watched a couple of episodes of it, and I have to say my big problem is I don't believe Melissa Rauch as a judge for one second. However, I think it's her company that actually spearheaded this project. So if there is one cast member who will not be recast, it is Melissa Rauch. Good to see John LaRoquette back, though, playing uh, the role of uh, of his, I forget the name, Dan somebody or other. Uh, but, yeah, he is just like in a completely different show <laughs> from everyone else in that cast. He is so good. Now, look, I'm rooting for multi-camera shows. Uh, I want to see a resurgence of those because when done well, they are truly funny. And I always say when you're doing a comedy in front of an audience, you're held accountable. The jokes have to actually be funny. But in the case of Night Court, I just wish it were better. And one of the problems certainly is when you do a revival of a series and Frasier is going to face this too, you're comparing this cast with the original cast, and quite honestly, the original cast of Night Court was way better. 
So, you know, other than John Larroquette, there's nobody on that cast that, um, you know, that to me is as good as Selma Diamond or Richard Mall or just about anybody else in that cast. One reviewer said that it captured the tone and the spirit of the original, and I would say that's very true. It's not necessarily a great thing, though. It's very broad. And uh, personally, I prefer comedies, situation comedies, certainly, that are a little more grounded in reality. I was kind of surprised that they even went ahead and did this show because I'm thinking, okay, you got Night Court. The people who remember the original Night Court, because we're talking the 80s, folks, so we're talking 40 years ago. And the people who remember fondly Night Court are not the demographic that NBC or any network wants, other than maybe the Decades Channel or Cozy TV. NBC could give a shit that a bunch of 60 and 70 year olds are watching this show out of nostalgia. They want young people. And Night Court means nothing to anyone under 60. So I was a little surprised. Apparently, they made this show a while ago and it's been sitting on the shelf for close to a year. Anyway, it premiered on NBC few weeks ago, and NBC is absolutely doing cartwheels. It was their best rated comedy in five years. That's pretty impressive. Remember NBC? You know, they were the network of must-see TV, you know, Cheers and Seinfeld and Friends and Frasier. And... So what rating number did Night Court get? A one. A one share. And that's the best of five years. And NBC is thrilled. <sighs> Network television is in trouble. Uh, I love the fact you see the name on the show. It was created by Reinhold Ouija. Isn't that a great name? Uh, unfortunately, he's passed away. He used to work for Danny Arnold on Barney Miller. Which brings me to Danny Arnold. So David Isaacs and I sort of wrote for Barney Miller. Barney Miller is a great show. I love Barney Miller, and I wish I could have written an episode of Barney Miller. But uh, Danny Arnold, in case you don't know, which is 98% of you, um, was a really terrific comedy writer. He did a show called My World and Welcome to It back in the 60s, which was really interesting, kind of Thurber-esque. It might be on YouTube, certainly worth finding if you can. Also, he did the first year of Bewitched, and if you look at that first season of Bewitched, black and white, it was really a romantic comedy. And it was very smart and sophisticated. And he left, 
and the direction they went was stupid. So the show just became all about magic and silliness, and the first year to me is the only year that Bewitched is any good. Okay, that's just my feelings about it. And it was Danny Arnold who was the showrunner back that uh, first season. But here's the thing about Danny Arnold. Uh, He, too, has passed on. But Danny Arnold was bipolar, probably at a time when we didn't use the term bipolar. But David and I uh, went in to meet with him. Our agent sent in material. I think it was the first MASH episode that we wrote. And we get called into his office, giant office at ABC. And he could not have been more gracious. He was, boys, come on in here. How are you? I love you guys. Where have you been? Let's go to work together. This is going to be fantastic. Oh, it's so great to meet you guys. Come on in with some stories, and we'll all go to work. Like, yeah, okay. So we went home. We came up with a bunch of stories for Barney Miller, and we came back the next week and go into his office again. And this time... Danny goes, yeah, okay, uh, what do you got? Very different tone from the first, boys, how are you, Danny Arnold, that we initially encountered. So we're pitching these stories, and one after another, he's just going, no, that's terrible. God, have you ever seen our fucking show? God, what are you coming in with? So uh, that really went great. And as we're walking out of his office with our tails tucked between our legs, uh, he goes, "Uh, you know, the one about uh, maybe having a gambling problem. I don't think there's anything there. But if if you want to try to develop something, go ahead. So we walked out and we said, you know what? We're not going to let this guy intimidate us, even though we did. We're going to come up with a story and an outline and bring it in, which we did. And he paid us for the outline and then cut us off. So we were not asked to write a first draft. We figure, all right, well, that's our experience with Barney Miller. And three weeks later, I get a call from his assistant can you be in Danny Arnold's office tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock? Like, oh, okay. I guess he wants to beat us up personally. So we show up, and I always had a, a little tape recorder. If there was going to be a story conference and we were going to be getting notes, I wanted to have a tape recorder so that I could make sure that I got each and every note. So uh, I was armed. And we walk into his office, and it was the first day, Danny. Boys, come on in. How are you? Hey, you want some donuts? What can I get you guys? Try these crawlers. They're fantastic. Anyway, I read over your outline. And you know what? It's pretty good, guys. And I think just a a few little tweaks here, and uh, I think we got a great story. Okay. So he pitched out what he wanted 
changed. And again, I'm recording this, so I'm getting every single note. And we go back and we incorporate all of his notes and all of the things that he said he liked about the story, and we turn it back in, and we're cut off again. Our agent said uh, that she talked to him, and his explanation was it didn't jump off the page. So that was it for Barney Miller, except a couple of years later, we're on MASH, and we get a call, and it's Danny Arnold. We pick up the phone, not knowing which Danny Arnold we're going to get. And it's the, boys! How are you, boys? Well, Reinhold Ouija had left to go and do his own show, which turned out to be Night Court. How would we like to come to work with Barney Miller? And work with Danny. Be great. <laughs> We're going to leave MASH to go to work for that insane guy? No way. So in a, in a way, he did us a favor. Because if we didn't have those early encounters with him, who knows? Although I don't think we ever would have left MASH. Um, one of the cast members of Barney Miller, who I really enjoyed, was Steve Landisberg, who also has passed on. This is sad. And I worked with Steve on another show called Conrad Bloom. You're going, what? Huh? Don't remember that. Yeah, Conrad Bloom was an NBC multi-camera sitcom in the late 90s. Steve Landisberg, great guy, big baseball fan, so he and I had a lot to talk about. Yeah, I directed three episodes of Conrad Bloom, and when you're a young director kind of starting out, and you're filling in your dance card with as many freelance episodes as you can get, most of the time you're not going to get friends. You're going to get these new shows. And along the way in my early directing career, and by the way, I was thrilled to get them. I was happy to direct any show that would have me. It was really good experience. And obviously I did a better job in the 10th, uh, show that I directed than the second or third, uh, but along the way, let's see, I directed two episodes of Ask Harriet, I did a couple of episodes of Brothers Keeper, Stop Me When You Heard of Any of These, I, I did an episode of Stark Raving Mad, uh, Fired Up, Encore Encore, it's all relative, Pearl. And the thing is, some of these shows were actually very good. There were some terrific actors in the cast of these shows, and there were some very good showrunners. Uh, Steve Levitan, uh, the guys from Frasier, 
uh, Anne Flett Giordano and Chuck Ramberg, um, uh, Victor Fresco, uh, let's see, who else? Don Rio was a showrunner, Donald Todd. So there were some really good showrunners, but the shows, for whatever reason, didn't work. Uh, you know how that goes. Uh, Marco Panette was another good uh, showrunner. Um, but, um, you know, I have to say then it was the directing that that cost them their their cancellations. But along the way, look, some of the actors that I worked with, too, Nathan Lane, uh, Neil Patrick Harris, Tony Shalhoub, Jonathan Banks, who went on, of course, to uh, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, worked with Linda Lavin, uh, Lauren Graham, Malcolm McDowell, when... I was working with Malcolm McDowell on a show called Pearl, and I was really kind of intimidated. I was saying to a writer friend of mine, God, this Malcolm McDowell, this guy starred in Clockwork Orange, directed by Stanley Kubrick, and now I'm directing him? And my friend said, you know what? He was also in Caligula, (laughs) and that helped a lot. By the way, he was really fun and easy to work with. Uh, let's see, who are some of the other actors I worked with uh, on those um, short-lived shows? Willie Garson, uh, love that guy. Again, you know, no longer with us. Mark Feuerstein, worked with him twice. Uh, Conrad Bloom and Fired Up. Ariel Perlman, uh, Sharon Lawrence, Leah Remini. I also worked with her when she was a kid on Cheers. She played one of Carla's daughters. Carol Kane who was a little out there, but not as crazy as some people think. She was very, very nice to work with. Stephen Weber, uh, Harriet Harris, Glenn Headley, a couple of actors in a show called It's All Relative that are really good Broadway actors, and you've seen them in other things as well. But John Benjamin Hickey and Christopher Siebert, they are both terrific. Joan Plowright, you know, she was married to Olivier. And again, I'm telling her, Joan, Joan, now let me show you how to make this funny. Like, like, how do I direct Joan Plowright? She was actually very good, too. And she wasn't in um, Caligula. Uh, Who else? Oh, Billy Ragsdale, who was in Brother's Keeper. Now, Billy and I go back. Because Billy happened to be the star of an ill-fated movie that my partner David Isaacs and I rewrote called Mannequin 2. That's right. We got that assignment because we also did the rewrite on the original Mannequin. And at the time... Uh, it was produced by a guy named David Beagleman. David Beagleman, at one time, and this was a pretty famous story, and there's a book about it, he was the president of Columbia Pictures. And he was forging checks as actor Cliff Robinson 
and and he was just pocketing the money. And finally, someone came to Cliff Robertson and said, um, uh, "Look at all this. Why, is, why are you writing all these checks?" And he's going, "What? I didn't write these checks." Could you believe it that the president of a movie studio would do? Well, that was David Beagleman. And he was pulling this stuff off and surviving for a long time. Why? Because he was making money. And in Hollywood, if you're making money, you know, until the bright light shines on you, the media, and you're really exposed, um, they'll put up with it, which is pretty sick. So I think he, he spent some some jail time and he's now the producer of this and david beagleman was david beagleman to the end when he approached our agent and said he wanted us to rewrite it he wondered if he could pay us in televisions <laughs> that's an absolute true story our agent said no you're going to pay him in money i mean if he pays us in television how does the agent get his 10 percent I don't know, does he get the aerial? I, I don't know. So anyway, we did a rewrite on Mannequin. Very quick, like two weeks. And uh, we were somewhat shocked that the movie was as well received as it was. Um, and there's a lot of our script that's kind of woven in and out. And... Sometimes they'll they'll keep our setups but drop the punchline or there won't be our setup. They'll just be the punchline out of nowhere. And one thing they did that is, is kind of odd, uh, when we originally got the draft, the movie was set in Los Angeles. And this, of course, um, uh, Andrew McCarthy... Uh, is working in a department store, and a mannequin comes to life, who's Kim Cattrall. And we thought, well, let's give the department store some character. So when he first gets the job, somebody is showing him around, and we looked up the history of the old May Company in Los Angeles, and uh, they said this is the, the first department store to have a wooden escalator and Greta Garbo used to get her cosmetics here. Well, in the movie, they relocated to Philadelphia and it's a Philadelphia department store. However, they kept all of that dialogue. (laughs) So now you're going, wait a minute. Greta Garbo would go to Philadelphia to get her makeup? Well, but that was a big hit. It was such a hit that uh, they decided to do Mannequin 2. And we got the call from David Beagleman to do Mannequin 2. It kind of begrudgingly. He says, "Yeah, well, you guys were lucky for us last time, so, okay, you can do this one. And we said, okay, we're going to do it for more lucky money 
than you paid us originally. One thing, when we're writing both Mannequin and Mannequin 2, we set up what we call the 24-second logic clock. You know, in basketball, in the NBA, a team has 24 seconds to shoot. Well, we were not going to spend an entire afternoon debating whether or not a mannequin could ride a bicycle or whether a mannequin could eat porridge. We would hit one of those points and we turned on the 24-second logic clock and just said, yeah, she can eat porridge, do it. And so we did not, we did not spend the amount of time that we normally would, if I'm being very honest. So Mannequin 2, we got the original script for Mannequin 2, and it was just terrible, way worse than the first one. And we did what we could, and it came out, and they even had a couple of other writers after us. guess we weren't lucky enough. But for Mannequin 2, we got shared credit. And I called our agent. I said, do we want this? I mean, this movie is a giant stink burger. And he said, yeah, you do, because then you're entitled to royalties. So anytime new writers are assigned to a project, it automatically goes to arbitration. And writers who are involved are asked to submit a statement as to why they feel they deserve credit. And these statements are these heartfelt you know, uh, this was about my life and I gave up a kidney so that I had uh, enough research to do this accurately. Just, just they pour out their hearts and souls for like three pages. And we just said, well, according to the credits manual, we agree with the credits. Thank you. That's it. And we won. Okay, great. So the movie opens up, and at the time, I'm now doing baseball. I'm with the Baltimore Orioles, and I remember we were in Dearborn, Michigan, outside of Detroit, and there's like a big cineplex, big mall with a cineplex, and so I went to see it opening day, big theater. It must have been 900, 1,000-seat in this theater. Me and one other guy. That's it. <laughs> oh man, it was it was absolutely terrible. Uh what else can I say about Detroit? Well let's see. I was a DJ in Detroit back in nineteen seventy four at W D R Q and uh I hated it. I really did. We had a consultant. I was on the air for like two, three nights. I was doing six to ten at night. And I was trying to be funny and <laughs> as funny as I could be. And uh, the station had a consultant. And the consultant said, well, because I'm on from six to ten at night, I need to have high energy. I need to scream. 
this was a particular style in Top 40 radio in the early 70s. So I sounded like an idiot because for four hours a night, I'm going, WDRQ, that's Elton John, 641. And I'm, you know, my throat is sore and, and it just sounded like an idiot. Thank God no air checks of me on WDRQ uh, exist on the internet because I will have to kill you. Uh, but fortunately, so I'm sending out tapes, needless to say, like crazy. I'm sending out tapes and uh, I get a job in San Francisco at KYA. And I go into the program director and I give him my notice. And the program director says, You're an idiot. You're an idiot. If you stay here for another year, you can work in Boston. And I'm thinking, what do I work in Boston? I go to San Francisco right now. It's not snowing. San Francisco. So, yeah, I left uh, WDRQ. And, okay, I'll tell you this, this one final story. A year before, I was uh, a board op engineer at KABC and KLOS in Los Angeles. KABC is a talk station. And I'm working one night, and the host had on as his guest a gentleman named Peter Herkos. Peter Herkos was a psychic, and he is famous for apparently being involved and having like the key piece of information that allowed them to capture the Boston Strangler. He's pretty famous. And so he goes on this show and people are calling up and it's pretty remarkable, really is, because he's going, okay, I picture you, you're in the fourth grade, and you're in the row by the window, and you're in the fourth seat, and when you look out the window, you can see a red swing that's on a tree, and these callers are going like, oh my God, oh my God, how do you know that, how do you know that? So, uh, and you're still, you're going, okay, I don't know. Maybe this is a plant or something. I, I don't know. So on a break, I went in to talk to him for a second. At the time, of course, KBC was uh, an ABC station. But at the time, I was trying to get a job in programming at their Chicago affiliate, WLS. And I was talking to the people and sending resumes and that sort of thing. So I only talked to Herkos for a second. But I said, where will I be one year from today? He said, you'll be in the Midwest. And I said, Chicago? And he goes, no. More north, I see a lot of snow. And I'm thinking, I'm a California boy. Oh, what am I going to be 
you know, Wisconsin somewhere. Is he nuts? Uh, okay. So it's my first night at WDRQ in Detroit. And I'm sitting in the <laughs> studio and it hits me. Oh, my God. Here I am. <laughs> Not in Chicago. I'm in Detroit. And there's a lot of snow on the ground. Maybe this guy is for real. And uh, that pretty much kills a half an hour here. Hope you enjoyed some of those stories. They're all true. And that will do it for this week on Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolfert, Bruce and Jason Miller. You are uh, invited to email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am no longer on Twitter, but I am on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, and I post a lot of my cartoons, the ones that uh, New Yorker has uh, printed, and some many that the New Yorker has rejected. So you can... Go to Hollywood and Levine on Instagram and see if the New Yorker is right. Thanks so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week right here on Hollywood and Levine.